Hello. You are listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the History of the Maghreb series and was recorded on the 12th of April 2018 at the library of the Medina of Tunis, Dar ben Ashur. In this podcast, Dr. Radhika Sabramaniam, Assistant Professor of Art and Design History at the New School of New York, presents a lecture entitled Looking for Abul Abbas. Even in his own time, more was written about the elephant than about most people. In 801 CE, the analyst writes, Charlemagne received news of the embassy he had sent to Baghdad two years earlier. Just crowned emperor by the Pope that Christmas, he was now in Italy's Lombardy. Two envoys, one from Baghdad and the other an envoy of Emir Ibrahim from Ifriqiya, bring word the two of his ambassadors have died. However, the third, Isaac, is returning, bringing with him gifts from Harun al-Rashid, the Caliph of Baghdad, among which is an elephant. Charles swiftly dispatches his notary, Erkenbald, to Liguria to make arrangements to bring over the animal and anything else that has been sent. The notary is evidently an efficient and resourceful man because it's not long after, in October of the same year, that the elephant and Isaac set sail from Ifriqiya, arriving at Porto Venere in Liguria. Winter is approaching, making the Alps impassable, so they remain in northern Italy at Vercelli, crossing the mountains the following year to arrive at Aachen on July 20th, 802. With this entry, we learn the elephant's name, Abul Abbas. The next mention of him is a brief line in the year 810. While in Aachen, Charlemagne receives word of an incursion by Godfrey, king of Denmark. We must assume that the elephant accompanied him northward to deal with this. Whether as a matter of course or not, we do not know. But here the analyst interjects tersely, the elephant suddenly dies. When a figure obscured in the historical record catches our attention, the search for textual and material traces often begins in archives and documents, architecture and museums, in a hunt for the small pieces through which to build a picture. For Abul Abbas, I could go looking for ivory olifants, carved chessmen, sculptural elements on buildings, for drawings, paintings and mosaics that depict elephants. But surely this strategy, and anything unearthed by it, says more about our own imagination than anything about the elephant himself. If our approach to animal biography is to track animals, even with all the attunement of a hunter, do we not also risk creating only the carcass of a life? How do we respond to the demand placed upon both research and expression by lives that overlap with but exceed our experience? Although Abul Abbas is well caught in the net of European history, his own story remains strangely threadbare. I am not the first to wonder about the life behind the filament of a name woven into a grander tale, nor am I the first to be snagged enough to want to follow it elsewhere. When you lift your eyes, forgotten lives, overlooked histories, and sideline figures call from the shadows. It is tempting to reach across the smudged divide and draw them into the brightness of the weave, to pick, as I do now, at the strand of the elephant. Dear Jay, I'm still on the wild goose chase of the elephant. Is that a mixed metaphor? I couldn't get to the museum in Berlin in time to look at the olifants. Quite frankly, it seemed so forensic an approach, 
unless it is to remind me that our relationship to animals always includes death and incorporation. How strange it is anyway to speak of ivory and elephants separately as if it is not all the same being. It turned out that there is actually a bit of ivory in the treasury in Aachen which could be made from AA's tusks. So said the Acoustiguide, although there is no evidence for this at all. When I ask the local museum folks about such an embellishment, I get a shrug. It's as if the town realizes it is participant in a myth, and by that I mean the entire Charlemagne complex, and isn't about to shatter it. But if it is true, this is as much the elephant's reliquary as the emperor's. AA is actually quite alive here, appearing in comics and cartoons as Carl's Elephant, who is let loose for the summer like many other pets. Can't wait to see you. With love, R. Who was the elephant before he stepped onto the pages of the Royal Frankish Annals? An epistolary historical fiction written by Lebanese writer Jamil Nakhla al-Mudawwar, published in Cairo in 1888, proffers a story called Hadarat al-Islam fi Darul Salam, Muslim culture in Baghdad. It depicts life in Baghdad in the heyday of the Abbasid Caliphate, as described by the son of a nobleman from Khorasan in a series of letters home. This Persian is appointed in 802 AD by Khalif Harun al-Rashid to head an embassy being sent to the Franks to seek an alliance against the Spanish Umayyads. He takes a number of presents, including a large white elephant, formerly owned by Khalifa al-Mahdi, Harun's father, to whom it had been gifted by an Indian Malik, Raja, a king. Well received in its time, the book was clearly written as a fiction. However, it is described as a relatively serious account, complete with references to several Arabic sources, leading scholars to speculate that Abul Abbas's journey might have originated in India. On trade, travel, diplomatic relationships with, and general curiosity about India, there is considerable Arab testimony. Records show that around 800 CE, during Harun's reign, a delegation was sent to get medicinal herbs and returned with more information about Indian religions and political conditions. Baghdad's Bayt al-Hikmah, or House of Wisdom, founded by the Caliph, was a prominent hub for both humanities and the sciences, responsible for facilitating connections to Greek, Persian, and Indian scholarship. Trade and exchange between the Arabs in India and China was active and ongoing. From the east came sweet cardamom for coffee, black pepper for a kick, aromatic spices like camphor and cinnamon, light muslin for harsh sunlight, deep indigo and other dyes, glowing jade, bright gems, silver and metals, sturdy teak for ship's planks, and ivory and elephants. From the west, ships carried juicy dates, finished goods, fragrant frankincense, gleaming gold, and Arab thoroughbred horses, light, fleet, whinnying, and much desired by Indian kings for their armies. Animals were at the core of the Indian traditional military structure, the Chaturanga, which was organized around four arms, elephants, horses, infantry, and chariots. Historian Thomas Troutman argues that the war elephant was actually an Indian invention. By this he means that in India, an entire complex of technology and culture had been constructed around the human-elephant relationship that included techniques of capturing wild adult male tuskers and training them for warfare. Sympathy for our elephant, together with the slim contours of the account in the Frankish annals, has more recently resulted in an actual biography for Abu Labbas. In 2011, German historian Achim Thomas Hack published just such a slender volume in which he said that the animal should be pitied for never having played a role in this story 
despite being flaunted in the titles of articles and covers of books. Hack is sensitive to the silence that surrounds the elephant's own experiences, his long journeys, the separation from his fellows, especially during the last 10 years of his life, as well as the damp, cold weather of his new Frankish home. Yet, in the somewhat wry biographical provocation to historiography, he also points out that about as little source material is available about human beings in the Middle Ages, so that in this respect, the elephant is actually not that ill-served. It's no more possible to definitively attribute traits to Charlemagne than it is to discern the temperament of Abul Abbas. Dear Jay, I go to bed with the insects and wake up with the birds. During the day, peacocks call. The first time I heard one, I was transported to the city of my early childhood when peacocks still wandered off the forested ridge. The birds have retreated in the face of the city's expansion. My mother told me that they danced for the rain, and I was always disappointed to find that no droplets followed that sharp call. Later, in my more monsoonal hometown, I learned to read signs of impending rain in the deepening blackness of waves. This afternoon, something set off a hive of bees in one of the neighboring trees. The hives are high. It has been so warm that bees often mill around our water source, seeming almost drunk as they fall into a pot. We've been treating them as boozy household companions, so when they first started buzzing straight in our faces, we were flapping, running and laughing, but not for long. Everyone retreated under mosquito netting for the entire afternoon, and it was a sober and swollen group who met for dinner. Who knows what set them off? While we were still laughing, we threw out theories to explain why they were going for some of us more than others. Tonight, such speculation received short shrift from the very stung. Yes, said one of the forest men economically. The bees have been up since this morning. Listening to the churring and whirring of the forest night, I am more than usually aware of the millions of conversations around me, without me, that happen beyond me, beyond us. Dropping off to sleep seems more than ever a sign of obliviousness. The chatter continues out of reach. When an elephant is brought into the control of humans, say the Sanskrit verses of the Matangalila, elephant sport, describing the process of making a village elephant, it is an experience of grief, fear and bewilderment. The longing for its former freedom and the memory of its forest life on mountain ridges and lotus pools and among other elephants never leaves the animal. Thus he or she may be tamed, but is never quite domesticated. So perhaps it's right that AA, like these nighttime exchanges, should elude my grasp and stay out of reach. Yours are. This is a tale of legends. Charlemagne, born Charles, nicknamed David, once described as the lion who reigns over all living creatures and wild beasts, kept a type of animal reserve in Aachen, where they were maintained for both hunting and as ornament. Unlike courtly menageries, this brogalus, as it was termed in medieval Latin, was more than a site of captive display. It included both game animals like stags, deer, and boar, as well as exotic species like peacocks, panthers, and may well have housed our elephant. The bust reliquary in the treasury at Aachen shows Charles with long curling hair, trimmed beard and moustache, erect head and shoulders. Glowing reddish gold, the bust is studded with the eagle heraldry that would come to symbolize his reign. His sarcophagus now lies near the beautiful octagonal cathedral in Aachen, where he was once disinterred 200 years after his death by Otto III, who, so the story goes, found his body seated upright with a scepter in perfect condition, ready to be the stuff of legend. Otto refreshed the body with oils, and before it was reburied, he wrapped it in a purple cloth decorated with elephants.
Harun al-Rashid, Khalifa of Baghdad, Amir al-Mu'minin, or the Commander of the Faithful, acquired some of his legendary status through the tales of the Thousand and One Nights, cliffhangers recounted every night by master storyteller Shahrazad to King Shahriyar in a bid to save her life. The unbearable suspense hanging over the bedchamber as dawn rose would prompt the monarch to grant another night's reprieve in anticipation of the next chapter in the tale. In Harun's time, the caliphate formed the center of an Islamic world that had expanded farther east since the Arab invasion of Sindh in 712 CE. Baghdad, the relatively new Abbasid capital on the banks of the Tigris, was a well-designed cosmopolitan city with a vibrant intellectual life fostered by the patronage of the caliphs. Little is on record in Arab sources of matters to the west, so we cannot confirm the assertion of Einhard, Charlemagne's faithful courtier, who contends that the elephant was expressly requested by the emperor and that the caliph, as a mark of high esteem, sent him the only one he had. Was it more likely that Harun was preoccupied with the domestic intrigues of his court, or the establishment of another library, or with a minor skirmish in his eastern periphery when the Frankish embassy arrived and the question was raised of the elephant? And perhaps irritated by the interruption on a matter from such a trifling quarter, did he wave a dismissive hand sanctioning this re-gift so that history could not catch this thread among the hundreds being spun every night in the royal bedchamber and weave them into the weft at number 1002. The Malik, who was the source of the elephant gifted to Khalif al-Mahdi, makes his appearance in al-Mudawar's 19th century account of the renown of the Abbasids. If this was Balahara, whom Arab sources of the 9th and 10th centuries described as the greatest of all kings of al-Hind, India, Malik al-Hikmah, Lord of Wisdom, his was a magnificent court, his cities of teak and bamboo, and his armies with innumerable horses and elephants. In fact, a Deccan inscription named him the fierce lord of the elephant force, and in Arabic he was Malik al-Fil, or Lord of Elephants. Balahara is believed to be Vallabharaja, an epithet meaning beloved king, used by the Rashtrakuta kings of western and southern India. Arab writers were as eloquent about Indian kings and their wealth as they were silent about their European counterparts. The Rashtrakuta kings allied themselves with the Arabs against their mutual foes, the Gurjarapat Pratiharas, who stood to the north in opposition to Arab expansion beyond the Indus. Persian and Arab traders established communities in these friendly territories. When the matter of a gift to his Arab allies arose in his court, did Balahara, in his infinite wisdom, issue a command to select an elephant from a royal pilkhana that had too many to count? The legend of Isaac, the Jewish envoy, is even fainter. Some historians have tried to follow his gentle trace in the archive, if only to remind us that this was more than just an interchange between the Christian empire and the Islamic caliphate. Medieval Jewish merchants called Radonites were active in trade networks across vast swaths of Europe and Asia. Perhaps Isaac was selected for the embassy because of a connection to these networks, and therefore as an interpreter. However, neither Isaac nor the dead envoys could be assumed to know anything about the care of animals, least of all an elephant. No captive travels alone. Who then is the man who leaves no trace except one we can presume by the presence of Abu Abbas, who rolled fodder and molasses into a ball to feed the elephant, took him to the river to be bathed and watered, calmed him when frightened, coaxed him forward when recalcitrant, or tempered his moods when raging with must. From the time of Ptolemy II, mahouts, or elephant handlers, 
had accompanied their Indian charges and were often recruited to train other elephants. For a long while it was believed that elephants could understand only the talk of these men, described by Scullard on the basis of Elian's early commentary as elephant talk, and would not respond to other commands. In Hellenistic usage, handlers or riders were generically called Indian, no matter what their origin. Indian Mahouts may well have eventually passed on their knowledge and training to local apprentices. Nevertheless, Indos remained an appellation, signifying a relationship to elephants rather than any ethnic affiliation and often used in the military context. In the 16th century, a Mahout from Kerala came along with the young Asian elephant Anno, acquired by Pope Leo X. As late as the 1970s, when Baghdad Zoo imported an Indian elephant, a Mahout from Assam was in tow. Al-Mudawar clearly thought an elephant's mahout would be Indian. Among the rich array of gifts his Khorasani carried were clothes of gold thread, rugs from Tabaristan, incense from Yemen and Hijaz, joss sticks from India, and a set of ivory chess pieces depicting elephants. So skilled was the Baghdadi Christian carver of the ivories, he says, that he depicted the mahouts, whom he calls Sahib al-Fil, as they were, with earrings in their ears, bangles on their forearms, and wearing Indian clothes. While the Indian treatise of kingship, Arthashastra, lists many jobs in the royal stables, from veterinarian to rider, forager to foot chainer, decorator to foot cleaner, it's likely that each elephant had a single handler closely associated with him. This Mahout often trained an elephant from the outset, working through a series of semi-ritual, semi-constrained, repetitive activities aided by other men and elephants. The time, care and attention demanded by an elephant, from the vast quantities of forage to regimens of grooming, exercise and training, has meant that a Mahout's relationship to his elephant could even supersede that with his family. Did such a man, already torn between these relationships, make the journey with Abu Abbas to Baghdad? And was this man, let me call him Al-Hindi, the Indian, recruited for his necessary expertise by Isaac to take yet another journey with an animal that only he really knew? Hello, Jay. Got a cab from the station, and predictably the driver was South Asian. It took us scarcely a minute to establish our antecedents. He gave me a little potted history of the town, strangely proud of its panzer production during the war. He has two daughters who are growing up German, another matter of pride. Not since his parents died five years ago has he been back home to Sheikhupura in Pakistan. Yet another of the many casual interchanges between supposedly hostile neighbours, only possible at a geographical remove from the subcontinent. It makes me wonder what separates and unites us the cabbie and I, as much as the elephant and I, and how distance and familiarity get configured to knit connections or create rifts. I've bought an illustrated volume of Grimm's fairy tales from the museum as a gift, and I'm trying to keep it from getting too thumbed with my own reading. Where do the animals that so abundantly populate the waking and dreaming worlds of childhood recede, and how can they return? It's through a dream that elephants spoke to bioacoustician Katie Payne when she was researching their communication at an Oregon zoo. She had just put two and two together about the vibrations she sensed near the Asian elephant enclosure. The elephants were communicating infrasonically, out of human range. No sooner had she realized this than they appeared around her at night to say, we did not reveal this to you so you would tell other people. Payne describes telling her parents about both the discovery and the dream at the end of a Thanksgiving meal. The account is folded into a larger tale of loss, 
of the family farm, of a marital relationship, of once being part of a we rather than an individual, and of a childhood in which she was introduced to trees by the taste of their sap and surrounded by creatures in stories read and told to her, from Ratty, Mole and Toad of Wind in the Willows to a beloved familial character, Johnny Possum, a somewhat curmudgeonly sleepy being created by her father. I too invented nighttime stories for my sister of a family of hedgehogs, an animal we'd never seen, who were friendly with an itinerant teapot. What else do we forfeit as age defamiliarizes this enchanted world of talking animals and traveling objects, when we lose our easy mobility between these worlds and with it our comprehension of them? But perhaps, as the spells of enchantment recede in our minds, these objects and creatures are set free. And indeed, I'm looking at those escape artists, the town musicians of Bremen, in their wonderful geometry, one atop the other, and trying to be, forgive the pun, less grim. Love to all, R. Travelers are full of tales, and yet this tale is bereft of answers to our most persistent question. How did they do it? The technologies through which animals are moved across the globe for food, pets, research, display, and diplomacy remain opaque to most people even today. Their experiences of these journeys are absolutely unknown. However, about a possible itinerary, we might piece something together from a strange amalgam of information from sailors and administrators. From the teak-rich coasts of Western India, the elephant and mahout may have embarked for Baghdad. The planks of the boat were of that very teak, sewn into shape with the fiber of the coconut palms that even today mark that shoreline. It's likely that the ship carried other goods and passengers. The Mu'alim was boss. Animals and humans inhabited the same spaces. Carrying fresh water was always an issue, and with a royal gift on board with enormous needs, the pressure would have been even greater. They probably stayed close to the coastline so they could replenish their resources as required at established ports in Gujarat and Sindh to Oman, all the way to Seraf, and eventually up the Tigris to Baghdad. Although only a few decades old at this time, the perfect round city of Khalif Mansur was thriving. Perhaps Abdul Abbas was even presented at the Iwan in the official precincts, but undoubtedly he and the Mahout probably spent their time outside its walls where most of the life of the city actually occurred. The Khorasani's account of the journey from Baghdad in Al-Mudawar's text takes them to Kufa, on to Damascus, and then to Beirut. It's a slow walk, he says, because they're trying to be kind to the elephant and because of other pack animals. With a northern breeze favoring them in Beirut, they sail to Malta, described as the beginning of Frankish land, on to Marseille, and from there back east to western Lombardy, where he meets the emperor. It's only on his return trip that he touches Tunis. Given that the annals specify that Isaac set sail from Ifriqiya, we will have to reroute the story. The zigzag of Al-Mudawar's itinerary is a reminder, however, of how the winds of politics to the winds of the sea, drinking water to water currents could affect the journey. The Aglabid Emirate was in its infancy and its control over Sicily still in the future. When the entourage set sail, it would need Frankish protection to hug the Ligurian coastline. Some combination of Genoese and Ifriqian nautical acumen may have adapted the embarkation and landing craft to help the elephant. Another Persian bureaucrat, writing less than a century after Abul Abbas's journey, was Ibn Khordadbe, a combination postmaster general and spy chief for the caliphate. His Kitab al-Masalik wal-Mamalik, Book of Roads and Kingdoms, describes itineraries that radiate from the central node of Baghdad. 
Presumably, they took into account the considerations of speed, safety, and reliability that would matter to a postal officer. To travel to the Maghreb, his route leaves Baghdad, traveling through Tiberias and Damascus to what he calls the Madinat Filastin, the city of Ramla. Along the coast, it continues to Farma in Egypt, where a more intricate network of crossroads emerges, reflecting a greater density of population. From Farma, most routes go via Fustat, Egypt's main metropolis, onto Alexandria on the coast, onto Barca in today's Libya. From Barca, the route follows the coast through Ajdabiya to end in Madinat Ifriqiya in the Maghreb, Kairouan. Whether he followed this exact route or made some variations to accommodate his animal companion, it is here that Isaac, under the aegis of the Baghdadi envoy, would have presented his credentials to Emir Ibrahim. Of course, even this long route wasn't the end of the journey for the embassy. They left the southern shores, arriving in Porto Venere in October, at the tail end of the safe season for Mediterranean crossings. From there, they still had to make their way over the Ligurian hillside to the old bishopric of Vercelli, where, which in later medieval times also had a substantial Jewish population. Snow must have come as a relief for these tired travelers, slowing their journey for many months. But in the early summer, once the passes opened, they set forth again. Perhaps they took the old pilgrim's way, the Via Francigena, crossing the Alps at Mount Jove, which is now St. Bernard's Pass and one of Charlemagne's favorite alpine crossings. On it led to the major junction of Veve on Lake Geneva, from where they could journey to Basel, where we can assume that they took the Rhine up to Cologne, finally to disembark and arrive in Aachen. Between the opening of the alpine passes and their arrival on July 20th was only a matter of several weeks, so it would have taken all the vigilance and solicitude of Al-Hindi and the participation and good humor from Abu Abbas to make it. Jay, have you seen Pietro Marcello's film, Lost and Beautiful, Bella e Perduta, about a speaking buffalo? It's a semi-documentary fantasy in which the servant Pulcinella is sent from deep within Mount Vesuvius to Campania to rescue a young buffalo calf named Sarcepone. The calf can speak, and he's eloquent in his observations about his condition as they travel through the countryside. As long as the fool Pulcinella remains the masked figure of Commedia dell'arte, he's able to hear and understand the animal. But at some point during the journey, he falls in love. He gets distracted, and he removes his theatrical mask. Suddenly, his comprehension ceases. The buffalo becomes nothing special, just an animal that is eventually led to slaughter. When men do not believe you have a soul, says the animal as he's being led to the truck, being a buffalo is an art. It's as if theatre and art, the worlds of make-believe and belief, are essential to access the revelations of animals. Or perhaps it's just the ability to be a fool, ridiculed and overlooked, at the sidelines of the main action, where other matters might still be heard. There in the sidelines is Al-Hindi, already so obscure and passing into oblivion. When did the realization hit him that his own language was just rattling like rotting teeth in his mouth? All he had left from home was elephant talk, a language that only the animal would understand. Did he repeat instructions just to savor the sounds, or whisper again and again the chants and words that only he and Abu Abbas shared together? Did he trace their journeys on the pressure points of the animal's body, waiting for Abu Abbas's trunk to reach out with the reassurance of their shared tongue? What did he do after the death of his fellow migrant cost him his job? Was he allowed to remain in the Brogolis in Aachen? Maybe he too heard a peacock call, and in it, the sound of a world long gone. Yours are.
Why conjure up al-Hindi, you might ask? Why not propel our imaginations towards a more sympathetic conception of the elephant itself? There is an often a headlong rush to give voice that follows a glimpse of the erasures and silences of history. Such giving voice to the assumed voiceless, especially alongside a long-standing characterization of animals as dumb creatures in all senses of the terms, permits all too easy forms of ventriloquism. Placing the mahout between us is like being asked for a password into another world. His knowledge and familiarity proffers an invitation, a possibility, but it's simultaneously a barrier against easy access. We may reach across the channel, he opens, but the centuries of interspecies contact embodied in him reminds us that entry isn't quickly gained. There is no Rosetta Stone for elephant talk. And indeed, rather than thrusting forward in our effort to give voice or even to communicate, what if we instead held back and tried to listen? What story might be told to us, not by us? Listen. What passes in the space between Abul Abbas and Al-Hindi? Listen. What makes or has made worlds that are both elephant and human? Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website www.themagrebpodcasts.com as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. Subscribe to the Semad newsletter at www.semadmaghreb.org or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode.